ahead and open up in a word of prayer. So, Father God, we just come before you, and we are so grateful that, again, we can gather together. God, we are grateful just for what we remembered, and God, we are grateful that we have your word preserved throughout time that is speaking to us today still. So, God, I just pray that we be encouraged by your word, that we just be um, called to live more for you through this message, and that it be your message. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. So October 22nd, 2004, the world was never going to be the same. Jacob Gladys Eddington, Gladys, is that your middle name? No, okay, was born. He, today is Jake's birthday, uh, Eugene, Jake Eugene Eddington, there we go, Jake Eugene Eddington. Uh, but he was born, and the world has not been the same since that time. Uh, so that's a memorable day today, Jake turns 19, but there's a couple other, especially in my lifetime that I can remember, kind of, uh, I don't know that monumental is the right word, but big dates that really pop out. And so for some of you, you will totally understand what these dates mean. January 1st, 2000, Y2K. Everybody thought that because we are going to go from 1999 to 2000, computers would not be able to handle all the zeros, and so therefore, the entire computer industry was going to crash. You had September 11th, 2001, a day that we still remember is in, and is heavy on a lot of people's hearts. You have May 21st, 2011. Maybe you're not familiar with that one, but that is one where this guy named Harold Camping, he said that date is exactly 7,000 years after the flood that happened in Genesis, and so therefore, that's going to be the end of the world. And then he realized he was wrong when it turned to May 22nd, and so he thought, oh, you know, I was off, so we'll postpone it a little bit. Then you have December 21st, 2012. That was where the Mayan calendar just ceased to exist for 5,000 years. It had been counting, and then it stopped. They could no longer add another day, and so people thought, oh, the world's going to end on December 21st, 2012. Then you have March 14th, 2020. That's at least for us here. That was when COVID lockdowns kind of were implemented. They happened elsewhere a little earlier. And then we saw globally, it wasn't just a regional thing, but globally, the world was shutting down because they didn't know what was going to happen. And then you have October 7th, 2023, something that happened just a couple weeks ago where Israel was attacked by Hamas, and it led people to start wondering, is this the end of the world? All of those events had people asking that question, is this the end? Is Jesus about to respond or to return? Now, that's just been in my lifetime that all of those events have happened. We're talking about other dates where in 1910, Halley's Comet came so close to the earth that people thought the world was gonna end and you could buy cans of air. It was a hot commodity at that time. People didn't know what it was gonna be like and so man should have invested in some good old oxygen during that time. You have 1831 where this guy named William Miller said that 1843 was gonna be the end of the world and he had 100,000 followers. This is pre-social media, pre-technology. He had 100,000 people believing him. 
In 1813, another woman said she was going to give birth to the Messiah in 1814. She died before she was able to even have a child, and she claimed she was pregnant, or was a virgin. You look at 1806, you had England, there was a hen. This one cracked me up. There was a hen that was laying eggs that had inscribed on it, Christ is coming. And then upon further investigation, because people started like going and like, I want to see this hymn that is prophesying the return of Jesus. They found out the owner was using corrosive ink to write on the hand and then reinserting the egg into the chicken. Poor chicken. I mean, like, my goodness. Then you have the London Fire in 1666. Christians saw 666. They thought, oh no, this is the end of the world. 1524, a German guy said that the earth would be flooded on February 25th of 1524. There was even a German guy that made a three-story ark based on that prediction. Second century, you had a guy named Montanus who preached the second coming was imminent, and many people flocked to modern-day Turkey because he said, this is where the new Jerusalem is going to descend. And then you even have all the way back to AD 50. A group in Thessalonica was worried that Christ had returned and failed to take them back with him. And so Paul writes his second letter to that church telling them, that the day of the Lord is still coming, but that they need to be ready. All of these events had people wondering, is the end here? And then again, October 7th, people were questioning, is Jesus coming back? Especially as it involves Israel and they read prophecy and they see what's going on. And the question that enters a lot of people's mind, is this the end? Is Jesus about to come back? And we're, we're going to enter into the apocalyptic prophecies here in a couple weeks where we're going to look at like Ezekiel and Daniel. And if you're not in Sunday school, they're currently going through the book of Daniel, and they're going to be hitting on some of that. If you would like to join in that study, it's at 930, and we've got a couple different ones for the adults and for the children too. But we're going to be looking at these, but right now we're looking at Zephaniah, who hits on this topic a lot. Like the prominent theme of his prophecy is this, the day of the Lord. He is writing to Judah and telling them that the day of the Lord is coming. And he's giving them warning, but he's also giving them hope through all of that. And so that's what we're going to see as we look at Zephaniah, our prophecy that we're looking at as we're continuing to look through Jesus in the Old Testament. And we see what these passages say and also how they involve Jesus and how he gives us hope in them. And so Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 opens up by telling us this is not Zephaniah's word, but it is the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. He's the author. The son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So here we have the author. It's the words of God being spoken through Zephaniah. And he is, as we're told, the great, great grandson of King Hezekiah, who reigned during Isaiah's prophecy. And so here we have this guy that is related to noblemen. He is a distant cousin of the current king, King Josiah. And so he gives us the dating that he writes. He says, 
during the reign of Josiah, who reigned from 604 to about 609, or not 604, 640 BC to about 609 BC. But one thing that Zephaniah prophesies about is the fall of Nineveh, which happened in 612 BC. So we know that he wrote before 612. Another thing that Zephaniah prophesies against is the altars of Baal, saying that they are going to be torn down. And during Josiah's reign, he does that in the 18th year of his reign. And so we can assume that it was between 640 and 622 B.C. Some of his contemporary prophets that are writing at this same time, you have also writing to the nation of Judah, Habakkuk and Jeremiah, and then writing to Nineveh, you have Nahum, who he is prophesying also the fall of Nineveh. And then the audience, Israel fell in 722 BC, 2 Kings chapter 17 uh, talks about that. And so we are strictly talking to the nation of Judah, the northern kingdom. And that's where we get the context. In 722 BC, Israel fell. They collapsed to the Assyrian Empire. They were taken into exile. And so then Judah is the main figure in the writings, and they have had terrible kings. You read about Manasseh and his son Ammon, who were like the worst kings in the history of Judah. They led the people of Judah to do more evil than anybody else. Manasseh, he raised altars. He put high places. He put a foreign God's image in the temple of God. Like he was leading people to worship uh, the false gods instead of the one true God. Evil upon evil upon evil. And his son did the same thing, Ammon. And then we get Josiah, who becomes king at eight years old. And then we're told in the eighth year of his reign at 16 years old, he decides, I'm going to seek after the Lord. And I'm going to do what is right in the Lord's eyes. And then you get the 12th year of his reign. And he starts breaking down all of these idols that his father and grandfather had built. He goes after these false gods. And then in the 18th year of his reign, he says, we're going to rebuild the temple of God. And so as they're doing that, they find the book of the law and they read it to Josiah and his heart breaks because he sees the evil that they've been doing. And so he's, he implements a revival, like it stirs from his own heart and he starts telling everybody, we're going to worship God. We're going to seek after God. He is the one that we will serve only and the people in religious formality start to do the same. And so for the first time since they left Egypt, they celebrate the Passover. Like we're talking centuries later where God said, you shall observe the Passover. And for the first time, they're being obedient. And Josiah's heart is for God. He is the most faithful king that Judah has ever had. And so uh, Zephaniah at this time is prophesying to them. And he's telling them, judgment is coming upon you. And it's possible that they heard that, that Josiah heard that, and his heart was changed because of that. But there's a problem that happens, that even though Josiah's heart is given over to God, the people's aren't. That we see a revival in his heart, but there's just one of formality in the people. They're like, we'll go through the motions, we'll, we'll do what we're told, but their hearts are still far from God. And so that's why Zephaniah prophesies and the message is 
judgment is coming upon you, but salvation can be found if you repent. The theme that you're going to find throughout Zephaniah, repeated roughly 19 times, is the coming day of the Lord. A day that should strike fear in those who are living against God. 19 times he says the day of the Lord, or he says this day at that time. He's referring to this time in the future where God is coming and going to pour out his wrath upon his enemies. And so that's what we see in the outline of Zephaniah. From Zephaniah chapter 1 to chapter 3 verse 8, you have a message of judgment on Judah and on the surrounding nations. He is prophesying judgment. It is not a good, uplifting read, but it is one where you read about God's anger, God's judgment, God's wrath being poured out. But then in verse 9 of chapter 3, it shifts, and you have the salvation of the day of the Lord. You have Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Judgment is coming. But then the last words of the prophecy, the salvation, the hope that he gives is, at that time, I will bring you in when I gather you together, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And so Zephaniah, again, is prophesying at a time where people think they're doing what's good. Like, yeah, we've implemented a revival. Our, you know, we're, we're doing everything God wants for us to do. Just like the other prophets that have been warning Israel and warning Judah that God is not pleased with them because he does not want a religious ceremony. He doesn't want outward actions. He wants what's in your heart. He wants your heart and your lives to be lived for him. And so Zephaniah, just like them, is saying, you need your hearts to get right with God. Because judgment is coming if not. So repent. Don't just change a couple things that you do. Don't be a cultural Christian. Give him everything. Turn from your ways and turn to him. Repent so that you can avoid the coming judgment. His message of judgment, it's, it's poetic. Zephaniah is writing in poetry form, and it's what we call a chiasm, and it's this uh, literary way of where they introduce a theme. We're going to kind of nerd out on you for a minute, so follow along, but they, they're, they're getting a point across. And so a chiasm, you see it in poetry a lot, where it follows a theme of A, B, and then it repeats that, B, A. So for example, we have a saying, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's a chiasm. Where you have when the going is the first point, it gets tough, that's the second point. When the going gets tough, the tough, got to remember the saying, it's written right there. The tough, again, it's repeating, get going. That's a chiasm. So Zephaniah writes in that because he's trying to get this point across. He's saying judgment is coming upon all the earth. Judgment is coming upon Judah and Jerusalem. And then they really emphasize the middle point. Judgment is coming upon all the nations. And then he repeats it again. Judgment is coming upon Jerusalem and judgment is coming upon the earth. So why is he doing that? Because when you read Zephaniah, it's repetitive because he is trying to get a point across. Judgment is coming. That you need to get your heart 
right with God. You see through these prophecies that God says multiple times, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your offerings. I want your heart. If you just come and offer a burnt offering to me, but your heart is far from me, that's nothing. Proverbs, I've been reading through it over and over. It says it's an abomination to the Lord. That the offerings of the wicked, that those who continue to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and yet they come and they offer up prayers and they offer up sacrifices, but their hearts are far from God. God says that's an abomination to me. That what I want is for your heart. I want all of you. This, it, it seems like, especially in our culture, it's like God can have Sunday, I'll take the rest of the week, and yet we can call ourselves Christians based on that. And it's like God's probably going to have a really harsh thing to say to those people when they come before him. And in Matthew chapter 7, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not attend church on Sunday morning? Did we not give a little extra in the offering plate? Did we not say a prayer before our meals? And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you because your hearts weren't for me. He wants your heart. And Zephaniah is emphasizing that. He is saying to the people of Judah, because he does not have your heart, judgment is coming. That there is going to be this day, the great day of the Lord, in which God's wrath is going to be poured out. And people are going to know who God is. Now, whenever you read these prophecies, they're kind of twofold. There's a near and there's a disfulfillment of them. So in 586 BC, the near fulfillment happened to the people of Judah. Just as in the people of Israel were being prophesied against that there is going to come a day where you are going to experience God's wrath. And in 722, Assyria took them into exile. In 586, Babylon took the people of Judah into exile. And so that's the near fulfillment of the day of the Lord, God's wrath falling upon the people of Judah. But there is a future one still that people are still asking about. Is this the day of the Lord? Is this the day of God's wrath? Is this when Jesus comes back and takes out everybody in the world? Is this when Revelation chapter 6 happens where it says, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful... Everyone, slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? That there's gonna come a day where that comes true. Where it doesn't matter who you are, celebrity, military, strongest man in the world, whoever you are, there's going to come a day when God's wrath is poured out and we are told they are going to run and hide and they are going to wish for death to come upon them. But death will evade them because of the great day of the wrath of the Lord. That just as to the people of Judah... And Babylon came in and they thought, who's Babylon at this time? They're that weak country over there that couldn't take on a preschool football team. Like, they're not going to come whoop up on us. And then in 586 BC, they come in and they lead them all to exile. Just as that happened to Judah, this is going to happen to the world. There's going to come a day where God pours out his wrath on his enemies. 
that we're told in Zephaniah 1.12 that at this time, Judah thought it's not going to happen. They say that God is distant. They say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do bad or do ill. That there's going to come a time where we don't have to worry about God doing anything. That it says that, but he's slow. Here we are 2,000 years later. That day is not coming. And so Zephaniah is saying that just like then, and the people were like, God's not going to do anything. We kind of see that in society today. Oh, God's not, it, it's not real. Peter writes about that in 2 Peter chapter 3. Where he's like, don't consider the slowness of God's returning as God just being like, ah, it'll happen when it happens. But instead, he's hoping for everybody to be saved. His slowness and his patience should be counted as salvation for us. That he is wanting more and more to come to know him. And so that day is coming. And let me tell you, uh, maybe the question is, well, Andy, are you going to tell us when that day is? No, because I don't know. But I do know this, we are one day closer. And he could come today. He could come while you're cutting into your delicious steak for lunch. He could come in your sleep. What we are told is that that day will come like a thief in the night. And so we are called to be ready. And so we are told throughout the first three chapters of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming. And it's this, this harsh word from God to his enemy. And then you get this shift. Because remember, it's the judgment of the day of the Lord, and then it's the salvation. That there is hope. That God's wrath is going to be poured out, but God says there is hope for his people. In Zephaniah 3.9, we get the shift. Judgment, 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 and then verse 9. For at that time, again, the day of the Lord, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. That there's this day of hope that is coming where God is gonna change the speech. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, he says, on that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. That there's no more going to be guilt. That we're not going to look back and think, oh my goodness, what a fool I was. But instead, we're going to look at God and we're going to see him and there will be no guilt. Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 tells us this. That there's going to be a day where we stand before God and he will be our God and we will be his people. And he will wipe away the tears from our eyes. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. For we will dwell with the Lord forever. And so we are being told here that there is a day coming where we have hope. That as believers, when we read about these things, they can be kind of scary. Because we're entering into the unknown. That we want to know, is, is Jesus coming back? I can't tell you how many times in my life, I, I've mentioned it before, even now that I've been married and I'm a pastor. I walk into the house and Heather leaves her phone at the house, but she's walked off to the vet clinic, which is like walking distance. And so I walk in, Heather, where are you? And I can't find her. So I find my friend on my phone and it says she's here. And then it's like, she's gone. God took Heather. But I've been left behind. Oh no, the rapture happened. And I mean, that's happened for a lot of my life. I get home, mom and dad, where are they? They're supposed to be home, but they're not here. What happened? It's a fear that happens. And so God's word though, 
gives us hope. It says that there is a day of judgment coming, but again, there is a day of salvation for us. That Zephaniah is talking about the people of Israel, but in Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, we are told that we are grafted in with the people of Israel. That we also, when we give our lives to God, are his chosen people, not because we replaced Israel. There's that replacement theology that thinks the church replaced Israel. Romans doesn't tell us that. Romans says that Israel is still God's chosen people, that there is a remnant that is going to be saved at the end. And it's not just because you're an Israelite by birth, but it's because you had faith like Abraham, that by faith he was justified and we are grafted in. We don't replace them. We join among them. And so there is a hope for us that there is a time where we get to dwell securely, where we get to be at peace. Zephaniah 3.13 paints a picture of this. At the end of that verse, it says, they shall graze and lie down. Think of Psalm chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside green pastures. He makes me lie down, I'm gonna butcher it, but he makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. A beautiful image of peace. And here Zephaniah is saying that they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. That that is the hope that we have. And that hope comes from one place. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10 tells us, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. That as we read in Zephaniah that there is going to come a day that wrath is poured out, but there is also going to come a day in which we have hope and in which we have peace. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, it comes to those who are found in Jesus who have given their life over to him, that he is the one that delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, Jesus tells us that we shouldn't be afraid of the things that we read about right now. Maybe you're like super courageous and you read these things and you're like, oh yeah, let's go. Or maybe you're like the little chicken that uh, saw the sky falling, chicken little, I think. I'm terrible at nursery rhymes, but they were like, oh no, the sky's falling, I'm gonna freak out. That's kind of my spirit. It's like, I want to run to fear, not faith. And that's initially October 8th. It was like, oh, Jesus is going to come back. I'm going to get left behind. This is terrible. I'm kind of being authentic here with y'all. Please don't judge me. But it's like, this is where my heart goes. And then I started reading God's word. And I was finding that he says, be strong and courageous. He tells us to have hope because he says in Luke 21, he tells us these things are going to happen. He says in Luke chapter 21, verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, okay, we're hearing about that. He says, run and hide and be afraid. No, he says, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. That's not necessarily the end. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And then in verse 20, he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, all right, we're hitting a little close to home right now, then know that its desolation has come near. 
Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city depart. Those And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. God tells us that's going to happen. Is that right now? Again, I don't know. But that used to invoke fear in me. And then you read verse 28, where God tells us you have hope in Jesus. He says, when these things begin to take place, tuck your head between your, nope, don't do that. He says, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That when you see these things taking place, you stand, when the world is freaking out, it said everybody else is going to run in terror. He says, but not my people. He says, you stand up straight, lift up your head, for your day of redemption is drawing near. He says in verse 31, also, when you see these things take place, know that the kingdom of God is near. That should excite God's people. That when we are taught by Jesus to pray, we are told, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come. We are desiring God's kingdom to come. That we are looking forward to this day, that we should stand up straight, that there should be a peace and even a confidence, not in ourselves, but in whose we are, that we should stand up straight, lift our heads for the day of our redemption is drawing near because unlike the rest of the world, we have hope and it is found in Jesus. He is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come because Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, he says, watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Don't fall for the cultural Christianity. Don't fall for what the Judeans were saying of he's not going to happen. It won't happen. Jesus says, you be careful. You continue to live for me. And he says, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But then again, he gives us hope in verse 36. He says, so you... Stay awake at all times. Don't get caught in living the ways of this world. Don't, don't be transformed or conformed to the world, but instead transform your minds. He says, stay awake, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Where does our strength come from? It's not coming from me. I am weak. I am wretched. I am feeble, but when I am, street, when I am weak, God works through us. 
He says to Paul, in your weakness, my power is made perfect. Therefore, when I am weak, I am truly strong. It is in Jesus and Jesus only. You see, when I read these things now, this is a whole new revelation for me. When I read these things now, I don't have fear, but instead I have courage. I read that I am to stand up and lift up my head because my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in how amazing the U.S. military is. My hope is not in that amazing technology of the Iron Dome. My hope is in Jesus. He is the one who will deliver me from the wrath to come. Therefore, if we have hope for Jesus, if you are able to look at these things and say, yeah, my hope is in Jesus, live for Jesus. Stop living against him. Stop saying Jesus only needs this part of my life. Live for him completely. Surrender everything over to him. As we sang, we lift our hands up and we lay our life down. Not just a little bit. We lay it all down. Because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to return someday. And everybody is going to see who he truly is. And Peter tells us, we'll close with this. Peter says, this is how you live your life then. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, wishing that none would perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, Zephaniah wrote about it, it will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, how ought you live your life? What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? That's how you live your life. Holy and godly, set apart for him. You wait for and you hasten the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We anticipate that day. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, this is how you live. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Not living the way of this world, but setting your lives apart for him and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That when we live our lives, and yes, we're going to stumble. We're going to struggle. Praise God for his grace. That where sin increases, grace increases all the more. But we don't make that an excuse to keep on sinning. That instead, when Jesus returns for us, he sees us living like this in holiness, in godliness, at peace with one another, without spot, living for him in everything. And we eagerly anticipate the return of Jesus, that we have courage. That as you read about things, and we're going to, in Daniel and Ezekiel, it talks about a lot of maybe what's going on. And as we read about them, we stand up, we lift up our heads, and we praise God for the hope that we have that is found only in Jesus. From where does my hope come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Father God, I praise you for the hope that you have given us. 
God, I praise you that we can have courage and confidence in you and what you have done. That as we remembered before I started preaching the sacrifice of Jesus, that is what gives us hope. But God, also, we can just get caught up in the cares of this world. We can get caught up in the nine to fives and whatever is going on, and we can start letting ourselves drift away from you. And so, God, I pray that especially now as we see these things happening, God, may we take them as a wake-up call, that we turn back to you, that we draw near to you, and we just surrender our lives fully to you, holding on to the hope that we have, Jesus Christ. God, we praise you that it's through him that we have this hope. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray this. Amen.